Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you today, and we want to give thanks to you, Lord. We have sung praises to the Most High, and it is good and right that we proclaim your unfailing love this morning and as we gather again this evening to proclaim your faithfulness. We sing to you, Lord, accompanied by guitars, drums, piano, by vocalists and a choir this morning because you thrill us, Lord, with all you've done for us. We sing for joy because of what you have done and the great works that you do. We recognize, Lord, how deep your thoughts are toward us. We recognize also how easy it is to be deceived by those who don't know you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would work in such a way that even though we may see evil abounding, sprouting like weeds, and those who practice wickedness flourish, as we gather together in your church, with your church in your presence today, we know and are mindful of the fact that your word has promised that those who do evil will be separated from you. But you, O Lord, will be exalted forever. And you have promised that the godly will flourish like palm trees. They will grow strong like the cedars of Lebanon. That you have transplanted us nearby rivers of water. You have brought us into your own house and your own family. And we flourish in your presence. We're thankful, Lord, that whether we are young or old today, that we all can produce fruit in keeping with repentance and faith. That you have the ability to preserve your people. And we declare that you are just, that you are our rock, and there is no evil in you. And we ask simply, Lord, today that as your church gathers and as we have guests in our presence, that your word as we have sung it and we have read it, and now as we have just prayed from Psalm 92, that your word would work to produce fruit in your people. And even if there are some here today who are not a part of the family of God, who are here through the invitation of a friend or family member, who wandered in, who are struggling with life and have wondered what Christianity is about, we pray, God, that you would move in their heart. Your spirit would draw them to yourself through the proclamation of your holiness, our need for redemption, and the promise of Jesus. We pray that not only in this gathering that you would be glorified, but that also throughout the city, that in every church where the word of God is being proclaimed, that your people will be encouraged and helped. That the lost will be ministered to, and they will hear the gospel, and that you would bring salvation. We pray and we thank you, Lord, for this season in which we can look forward to your second coming as we look back to your first. And we pray, Lord, come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> this morning we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 15. And uh, there should be some new uh, sermon guides for you out on the tables in the foyer so that you know where we're going in our Samuel series after the new year and um, what goes on beyond that. 
If you did read the passage this morning, you are probably wondering how this is going to go. And you are not alone because I am wondering that as well. I've got all kinds of notes, and yet my mind is still wrestling with the sober realities that we find in 1 Samuel chapter 15. I don't know if you've ever been at a party or some celebration where everyone around you is caught up in the moment, the euphoria of the event. Whether you're celebrating a last-second basket in a basketball game and you're celebrating the victory that coming from behind or whether you are celebrating a birthday or it's New Year's or whatever, and everybody is captivated by that moment and you find yourself standing back watching with a painted smile on your face and yet your heart is just consumed with sorrow. You know things that nobody else knows. You're grieving over realities that everybody else is oblivious to. If you've ever been there, then I think you have a little bit of an understanding of how Saul might have felt by the time we get to the end of chapter 15. A great religious feast is taking place. People are celebrating a victory, and yet the king is standing by because he has heard from God that his kingship, his reign, is over. And while everybody else is celebrating the spoils of war, and while everybody else is celebrating the victory over an enemy that goes back centuries, King Saul is left alone and vulnerable. For God has rejected him because he has rejected God. And even God's prophet has left him. We look at this passage and we need to understand that as we hear from God's Word, there are going to be hard things for us to understand. And if you don't know anything about the Bible, thank you for coming. We are a church that's committed to God's Word unashamedly. So we preach hard, uncomfortable passages because they're in the Word, and we don't get to pick and choose what passages we want to lift up and those that we want to just kind of blush over and hide and conceal. 1 Samuel 15 happens to be one of those passages because in this text, we read that God told His people to go and wipe out another people. We read that God says, I want you to do this as a sign of my judgment on them for sins that they have committed. And while I have been merciful for many centuries, the time has come to judge these people. And you are not to have mercy on women or children or even infants. I wish this wasn't in the Scriptures. I wish that sin didn't corrupt so absolutely. And so we need to understand what's going on in this passage. Let's let's just jump in. Chapter 15 and verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over Israel, over his people Israel. 
Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telium, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And he came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And he said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction." Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night and Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself. And turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them. From the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices 
as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. I understand that for most of us, we only understand war in the context of the world and times that we live in. A country like Russia is invading another sovereign country to eliminate its government and to set up a puppet regime. This is not the kind of war that we see in 1 Samuel. If you've been around long enough, you remember maybe the Khmer Rouge in in Cambodia that killed millions of people. We see fighting within people groups. We see ethnic cleansing in Somalia and other places and times around the world. We saw and witnessed from history Germany killing millions of Jews and Poles in the 40s. You go back even further and the, the, the Turks killed millions of Armenians and Greeks in Turkey in 1915 to 1917. You got Russia who, less than 100 years ago, killed millions of Ukrainians through famine. We see war and we automatically think that what's taking place in, in 1 Samuel 15 is just like what we've experienced and what we understand. And this is where I've got to politely and kindly say, no, this isn't the same. This is not anything like this. In fact, What we see here in the Old Testament is what is truly to be understood as holy war. Before I get to that, let me just set the stage. Look at verse 1 and 2. Samuel sets the stage for what he's about to say. You remember me, Saul. I'm the guy that anointed you king. The Lord sent me to anoint you as king. Now, I want to tell you I've got a message for you from the Lord. And this is it. And this is the message, the same message for Saul as it is for us in the context of not going to war. But here it is. God's voice is the only voice you should hear and obey. If I could summarize this whole complicated passage into one statement, it would be this. God's voice is the only voice you should hear and obey. And there's all kinds of competing voices Saul blames the people. It was their voice that he listened to. He couldn't do anything as the king. Yet, just last week, we saw that he made a curse and an oath. Anybody that eats before I have revenge on my enemies is going to die. Saul could have stopped them if he chose. You're going to hear voices of your friends. You're going to hear voices of the culture. You've got TikTok followers. You've got all kinds of social influencers. Everybody is begging for your attention. And let me just say, the voice you need to hear and obey is God's alone. And so we see that the word of the Lord of hosts comes to Saul in verses 1 through 3. 
Samuel says, obey the words of the Lord. And then emphasis is placed on the fact in verse 2 that the Lord who anointed Saul as king over his people, the Yahweh's people, is the Lord of hosts. This is, in a very real sense, the sovereign king of the universe is bending low to speak to the human king of Israel. These aren't just words. Saul should have understood what Samuel was setting up. Saul should have understood the pecking order here. It's clear in the text. God is the ultimate authority. This king serves God. And he is going to be sent on a mission here. There's no question about who is in charge. And now, what is the mission? God says it's time to bring his judgment on the Amalekites. And we're not going to get into all that could be said about a holy war and this idea that's taking place here. You could go back to listen to Joel Tanner's messages from the book of Esther, which dealt with holy war. And even the possibility that Haman would have been a remnant, a survivor of that Amalekite line. But this verse reminds us of several historical facts. Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 13, when the Amalekites attacked a tired and weary Israel from behind. As they were at the oasis of Rephidim during their journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai. And at that time, because they took uh, action against Israel, God swore to Moses that he would utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And so God is telling Saul, if you are going to lead my people underneath my headship as the Lord of hosts, It is your duty to carry out my commands. And this is what makes this passage so distinct from any other political person who is alive today. That kind of relationship between them and God and God and a people group does not exist as it did in Saul's day. God is not speaking to Putin and telling him to do this against Ukraine. This is a unique time and situation, and we need to give it its full credibility and weight. This principle is only to a theocracy in which God is the king. Human politicians do not have the right to declare vengeance, and Amalek was the Lord's enemy. So, verse 3, this phrase, devote to destruction, it appears numerous times in the passage. If you took notice of it as you read through this this week, the other way this could be translated is to put under the ban. It's a terminology that's also used outside of the Bible. So we have a a Moabite inscription, and then we have an Ugaritic inscription, and they both speak of placing objects and people under a ban, totally to be consecrated or devoted And then it took on the idea of utterly destroy, something that's cursed. And if you touch it, you become defiled by that cursed thing. In the Bible, it's used to describe something that's devoted or set aside for Yahweh. And we're going to see it in the book of Joshua, chapter 7. You see it at Jericho, remember? When Joshua fought the battle at Jericho, there was a guy named Achan who everything within the city walls was to be devoted to destruction except for Rahab and those that were in her house because they had aided 
the Israelite spies. And what happens then is we find out later when Israel goes up against a much smaller force and are defeated that Joshua's crying out to the Lord, what's going on here? And God says, you guys have sinned. All that was in Jericho was to be killed and then burned by fire. It was to be an offering to the Lord. And one of you has touched it. One of you has taken it. And that was Achan. And so this isn't a new concept for Israel. There's also another passage that I need to remind you of other than just Joshua 7, and that's Deuteronomy chapter 20. So if you want to take some time this afternoon and you want to read about what real holy war is, read Deuteronomy 20. God lays out the rules for his people when they go into warfare. And it is, it is first of all, let me say, Israel was only to go to war when God told them to. And then Israel was to conduct themselves in war according to God's instructions. It wasn't supposed to be a rampaging, a night of violence. Just kill anybody, anytime, anywhere. Loot, pillage, burn, destroy. This, this isn't what God describes in Deuteronomy 20. In fact, in that text, the Lord instructed Israel when they waged war against cities outside of the promised land boundaries that God had promised Abraham, Israel could keep what they captured as plunder and they could keep the people that they captured as forced labor. But if they fought against any nation inside the boundaries of the promised land, they were to devote everyone to complete destruction. Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 and 17. And then God tells the people why. The explanation for this in verse 18, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. You see, God wants to protect Israel from syncretism. This idea that we, we can live among pagans and we can worship the same gods they do. We'll, we'll tweak it so that we can worship God using their means, their practices, their rituals. And we can kind of blend these two religions and just call it happy. It's an infection and God says we cannot tolerate that. I will not tolerate that. The kind of war that God was calling for was very much the result of God's judgment upon the Amalekites. It wasn't a war about grabbing land or capturing stuff. It was a war in which God would fulfill his ancient command and prophecy. God would use Israel uniquely as his instrument to execute judgment on the people that God had cursed for their sinfulness. It was a judgment that God had announced hundreds of years prior, and now the day had come. And that's what gets us through verses 1 through 8. And then in verse 4, or 1 through 3, in verses 4 through 9, we see Saul's disobedience. We read that before. Clearly he disobeyed. They kept things they were not to keep. They did not obey God's word. In fact, the little added note is that they destroyed only that which was worthless, and despised. If Saul had obeyed God's commands, he would have honored the Lord and his word and the institution of the ban. 
the offering of everything as a total destruction, a one big sacrifice to God. And what would have been shown to the nations is divine judgment at the forefront. But what ends up happening because of Saul's disobedience, it looks just like it sounds to our ears, a land grab. We're going to war to get booty. We're collecting prizes and treasures. And what happens is God's reputation is attached to His people and when His people don't work and act and live according to His instructions, then God's reputation, His character, is attacked. This is much bigger than, than the simple, well, they, they were trying to do the right thing. In chapters 10 and 11, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul Remember that? It enabled him to do God's work. But in chapter 15, did you notice as you read through it this week, there was no mention of the Spirit whatsoever? Based on Saul's actions, we would be right to conclude that he acted according to his own desires and not the Lord's. And Christian, we cannot forget this. That as God's representatives, as followers of Jesus, if people know you to be a Christian then they are measuring God by what they see and understand in your life. Now, that's a huge pressure. But when you do things that are inconsistent with the character of God, you bring shame upon His name. And that's what Saul did here. We are called to act in ways that rightly reflect God's character. And the question is, do we do this? Are our actions... Even this last week, have they reflected poorly on Christ or favorably? Here's another important observation. Although the Spirit isn't mentioned in this chapter, did you notice how many times God's Word is mentioned? If you come from a charismatic or Pentecostal background where there's a strong emphasis on the Spirit's leading the Spirit's filling, the Spirit's prompting and enabling, here's a text that implies that God's Word ought to have the same authority in our lives as the Spirit. God has revealed His Word to Saul through His prophet. And God had revealed that word to Saul, not only through Samuel in that moment, but Saul could have opened his copy of the law. Because remember, in chapter 10 it was given to him. And he could have read from Deuteronomy 20. He could have read from Deuteronomy 24. And he could have read Joshua chapter 7. And he could have understood the idea of a ban and what God intended to do against the Amalekites. God had revealed his word, not through the internal workings of the Spirit, but through his spoken revelation. And we need to not pit one against the other. The Spirit is more important than the word we see that they are, have the same authority because they come from the same God. So as we get to verses 10 through 31, the word came to Saul, and Saul disobeyed. A clear mission from God, he chose to go his own way. And then we see in verses 10 through 31 that the word comes to Saul yet again. But this time, because Saul has rejected God's word, God has rejected Saul. 
And in verses 10 through 23, what we've already read, the prophet confronts him. Three times we read the phrase, I regret, verse 11, verse 29, and verse 35. It's exactly the same words that God used in Genesis 6, 7 when he says, I regret that I made mankind. And he has to destroy the world with a flood. Saul is a regret for the Lord. Now, these statements, the statement in verse 11 and verse 35, if you were paying any attention and you read it, and you heard Samuel say to Saul, God does not a man, he doesn't have regret, he doesn't change his mind, and yet Saul has said multiple times that God regrets that he made you king. So is, is he confused? Well, if... If I understand things correctly, verse 11 and verse 35 are what's called anthropomorphic, which means God uses human language so that we can understand his mind on a matter. When the Bible speaks of God with his face or his hands or his eyes were burning or his legs were as burnished bronze, his feet, when they talk about him in terms of humanity, Those are just images to show us that God is engaged in the world in which he created rather than being apart from it. And so what's being conveyed in verse 11 and verse 35 is God is using language that we can understand that Saul's disobedience actually brought great pain to God. That God was grieved and upset by what Saul had done. But if you look at verse 11, notice that God says something else about Saul. Not only that Saul, by his disobedience, has grieved God, but that that became the very day God marked it down, that that was the day when Saul turned his back on the Lord. Samuel didn't know it until God revealed it to him. It's possible that Saul didn't even know that that was the day. But God does. And he makes it clear it's a day that Saul would never recover from. And this ought to be a warning to us to turn over and over from the Lord, to deny him, to reject him, and to say no to him time and time again. It eventually brings you to the place where there is a final hardening, a final turning away that will have disastrous consequences. And this, this is not something to be toyed with. We don't know when that day will come. If you remember that old commercial, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop? Most of us don't have the patience to find out. Like, right? A few licks and we're chomping on that thing. We don't know how many times we can deny the Lord before it's the day that we have turned away from following Him. Only God knows. And the lesson for us is to not risk becoming His enemy by stubbornly refusing to listen to His voice. Notice what happens is Saul is angered and devastated. Or Samuel is. Spends the night crying out to the Lord. What, were the, what was the focus of his prayers that night? I don't know. Is, is the old prophet jealous for God's name? And he is angry too that this righteous thing that God had the authority as king of the universe to judge sinners and to use Israel's as instrument to accomplish that, that this righteous act brought dishonor on the God 
of Israel because Saul's disobedience? Or was Samuel crying out for God to forgive Saul? I don't know. Based on what we read at the beginning of chapter 16, I think either interpretation is a viable one. But what we see here, just as Moses interceded for sinful Israel over and over, Samuel is fulfilling his role to always pray for Israel and his king and her king. Just as he promised to do in in chapter 12 and verse 23. And what's clear is the fruit of that night of prayer. Somewhere along that night, God told Samuel exactly what was going to happen. Saul was done. And Samuel was to take that message to the rejected king. And if you remember the story of Samuel's origins, remember how as a little boy he had a vision and the word came to him in the night and God called him Samuel, Samuel. And he kept thinking it was Eli. And then when God gave that young boy the message that Eli was going to be destroyed, his family would lose the right to lead the nation as the high priest, that this young boy then had to convey that message to his mentor. And now we see an old Samuel who yet again has to take a bitter and hard message to his protege. And yet he doesn't shrink back from doing it. He doesn't delight in it. But he provides an example on how we ought to respond to the disappointment and failures of the people we love. Samuel obeyed. He sets off to find Saul. And as he travels, he finds two things, two significant details that we find here in verse 12. Saul sets a monument up for himself in Carmel. Apparently, in his mind, it was he, not God, that gave the victory. And then after we're told about his monument in verse 12, don't miss the idea that the word Saul turned is used. And so just as God said in verse 11 that Saul has turned away from following me, so we see a physical representation of that in verse 12. The writer is making these connections for us as his readers. And yet verse 12 holds another important detail. Saul was headed to Gilgal. And this, this place was the place where Samuel and Israel renewed the covenant with God and the king and the people in chapter 11. It was the place of great celebration after God used um, Saul to deliver the people of Jabesh-Gilead. And everyone's celebrating in chapter 11, but we also see in chapter 13, it was the place where Samuel rebuked Saul for his unlawful sacrifice. Gilgal was the place where Saul lost the dynasty. You won't have, your descendants will not sit on this throne forever. God is going to give it to a man who's better than you. A man after his own heart. And so, it's all being set up. Once again, Gilgal is going to be a place of bitterness for Saul. And when Samuel does find him, Saul approaches him with the customary greeting, Blessing, blessed be you in the, to the Lord. And notice what he says next. I have performed. I have accomplished the commandment. In other words, the word, the instruction of the Lord, verse 13. And it's important that we keep the narrative connected and we don't lose sight of the forest for the tree. If you look back at verse 1, Samuel told Saul to listen to God's words, plural. But in 1513, Saul, Saul 
used the singular word commandment. This is not a mistake. This is an example of teaching us how to read our Bibles, to pay attention to these details because they are significant. Saul was given instructions. Saul kept one commandment. And he knew that. And the narrator doesn't want us to misunderstand that. And the result of it is this. Young kids, I want you to hear me. Partial obedience is actually disobedience. You can never partially obey. I got three things I was told to do. I did one of them, so I obeyed. No, you didn't. You disobeyed. You were told to do three things. And here is a grown-up who failed to get that. So, kids, if you miss it the first time, let me repeat it again. Partially obeying your parents is actually disobeying your parents. Saul wants to make excuses. It's the people, verse 15. They had great intentions. We wanted to bring this back to have a great big feast to the Lord. We wanted to offer the best to the Lord. But Samuel interrupts him. I know the truth. Stop your mouth, Saul. I got a message for you. And Saul says, speak. He was quick to condemn the troops. And Samuel says, why did you pounce on the spoil? Remember back with the Philistines in chapter 14? Saul, you were quick to um, condemn your soldiers for pouncing on the spoil after defeating the Philistines. But now it's Samuel who's rebuking Saul for pouncing on the spoil and doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord in verse 19. Saul's excuse in verse 20 and 21, let's blame the people. And then here is the point of the passage. Partial obedience is disobedience, verses 22 and the beginning of verse 23. And this is a reality that we need to understand as Christians. We cannot separate duty and devotion. We can't say, I love the Lord, and we don't live in any level of obedience to the word of the Lord. And then we can't say, well, I've checked all these boxes, but I've just done it. Because these are the things I'm supposed to do, and we don't really love the Lord. You have to keep these two continually coupled together. Obedience is not, obedience and offering cannot be separated. Duty and devotion cannot be separated. We are being called to obey the Lord on His terms, not ours. And the only thing that pleases the Lord is when His people listen to Him and obey. And Samuel relays God's word to Saul. This was his responsibility as a prophet. And although we can have good pastors and teachers who can help make sense of God's word, ultimately we have to remember that God, the sovereign king, the Lord of hosts, has spoken to each and every one of us through his word. We are hearing from God each time we open it. In God's eyes, what does he say in verse 23? Arrogance and rebellion are just as evil as sorcery and idolatry. Saul, it's the final straw. 
God has rejected you because you have rejected the Lord. And for those that may be familiar with the Old Testament, what unfolds in verses 13 through 23 might strike a sad but familiar tone. You remember Genesis 3, 6? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. It's similar to what we referenced in Joshua 7.1 where the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things in Jericho for Achan took some of the devoted things. You see, God didn't tell Saul and his soldiers, I want you guys to determine what's valuable and what's not. And then what's valuable I want you to bring to Gilgal and offer to me. God says, destroy everything as an offering to me. So we see examples of people who tweaked God's word. Now let's hear how Adam and Eve and Achan responded when their sin was brought to light. God says this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 12. Who told you you were naked, Adam? What's going on here? Did you eat of the fruit of the tree I told you not to eat? Adam says this, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the fruit and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. In Joshua chapter 7, Achan was asked a similar question by Joshua. And here's Achan's response, quite a different one from what we read of Adam and Eve, and certainly different from what we read of Saul. Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them. Adam and Eve shift the blame. Achan confessed his sin. He he sinned in two ways. He took what he wasn't supposed to take and the reason he took was because he coveted it. He lusted after it. Saul acts more like Adam and Eve than Achan. First he said, I did keep God's commandments in verse 15. And then he dug his heels in even further, declaring once again he'd done what he was supposed to in verse 20. And then, okay, it's the people's fault, verse 21. And then only after hearing that the kingdom was lost for him, that he would no longer be God's king, does Saul admit his sin in verse 24. But even that admission seems to be suspect because he says in verse 30 he wants to save face in front of the people. He's trying to get Saul or Samuel to come back and worship with him. He was the king. He could have shut this down even if the people really did want the treasures. But God told him to destroy everything as a sacrifice. Now think about this. If everything's destroyed in the city of Amalek, or if most of it's destroyed there, but the rest of it's destroyed in Gilgal, isn't God still being worshipped? Doesn't the end result come out to be the same? You see what I'm saying? If it's all going to be destroyed, 
if it happens all at once or if it's split out over two, what's the big deal? Why should that matter? This is where we wrestle with the ethics, right? The end justifies the means. And we fail to understand that what took place here was a deliberate act of rebellion against God. God could be glorified only in obedience to his word. And Saul failed to understand that. So when we are caught in our sins and God confronts us through his word, through pastors or brothers and sisters in Christ, let us commit today that we will not make excuses, that we will not shift blame, that we will not protest, that we did do the right thing, you just don't understand, nor that we will dig in our heels, but that when God confronts us through his word or another believer, that we would come clean and bring our sin into the light. I think there's a deliberate thing taking place in verses 10 through 23. There's something going on with the listening and the hearing. So Saul is urged to listen to the words of the Lord at the beginning in verse 1. And in verse 14, Samuel asks for an explanation of the noise that's coming into his ears. The the sheep and the bleeding and the oxen lowing. And twice in verse 14, Samuel brings attention to the things that he's hearing. And then in verse 16, Samuel interrupts Saul with stop talking and I will put something in your ears that you need to hear. And he rebukes him in verse 19, reminding him in verses 18 and 19 what God had said for him to do. Saul protests that he had obeyed God's voice, but Samuel doesn't stop. So it's been a while since we've read 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 1. But if you remember... God, before God made Samuel a judge in Israel, we are told that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And yet, in our passage, God's word is not rare. He spoke over and over to Saul through Samuel, several times, verse 1, 10, verses 16 through 23. The problem isn't we need to hear from God. The problem is we don't want to obey God. Saul refused to listen. It reminds us of that same spirit of rebellion that Jesus encountered from the Pharisees who refused to hear God's voice through Jesus. And I do encourage you to read John 10 today. It's a great text. Jesus starts off with, My sheep hear my voice and they follow me because they know me. I'm not a hireling. I'm not climbing over the wall. I work here, and the sheep know me. And then it gets into a confrontational thing with the Pharisees who tell us plainly, are you the Son of God or not? And Jesus says, I have told you. I've done miracles. John 9, he heals a blind man who had been blind since his birth. He's an adult male, 30-some years old. Even that guy got it. How could anybody do this if he didn't come from God? And in John 10, they're asking him, prove to us. Tell us plainly, are you the Son of God? And Jesus says, I have told you, and I have shown you, yet you refuse to listen to me. Friend, if if you are in that stubborn resistance, there is only one thing for you, and that is to beg God to change your heart.
Good intentions are no substitute for obedience. Verse 9 says that anything that was despised was destroyed. Anything that was worthless was destroyed. But only that which was good was kept. For the fact of offering it to the Lord. And yet, the ethical tension that we wrestle with throughout all of our days, can, can we really just accomplish a goal, any means by we choose, and it's okay because the end justifies the means? Or that two wrongs can make a right? This is a tension that we're going to wrestle with on the playground, in the classroom, in our homes, where we work. And we could t- talk a lot more than what we have time today about all these different scenarios, but I think the text says it best. If you look at verse 22, there is no shortcut to obedience, and there is no higher duty for the believer than to obey God's word. The gospel calls for repentance, and we see that in the gospel that this holy war that God has against sinners has been dealt with on the cross. There is no longer a sword of death hanging upon those who put their faith in Christ. Christ has paid all our sins. He has atoned for our sins. And we can have absolute confidence that Jesus has conquered All of the enemies of our lives. Our sin, our death, our sin nature. And Jesus has done this through His sinless life, His atoning death, and His powerful resurrection. And so as we are here on this fourth Sunday in Advent, we who trust in Jesus look forward to His coming. And we look forward to His coming because we know that He will not die again, but He is coming to redeem God's creation, to draw His people to Himself, and He is going to rescue us from the tyranny of our enemies and His enemies. He's not going to come back like a lamb. He's going to come back, as we sang this morning, like a roaring lion, a conquering king. He is the Lord of hosts. And so the question is simple. Just as God kept his promise to punish the Amalekites for their sin, God will keep his promise to send Jesus back to deal with the final enemies. And the the question is, how do you view that reality, the return of Jesus? Is it viewed with hope and anticipation, or is it viewed as angst, fear, anger? Will you bow the knee and cry out to God? God rejected Saul as king. We could read further, but we've got uh, only so much time. Saul, in verse 24, confesses that he sinned. I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel says, no way. I will not return to you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king. And then things get physical. Samuel turned to go away. I mean, this idea of turning, you know, he turned, Saul turned from the Lord. Saul turned from his monument. 
Saul, Samuel is now turning from Saul, and Saul is going to prevent him. He grabs a hold of the prophet's cloak, and he tears it off. And you can see Samuel looking back, and he says, this is, I couldn't have scripted a better parable. This is you. The Lord has torn the kingdom from your hand, and he's given it to another. The Lord is not man that he should repent. He will not lie or have regret. And then Saul said yet again in verse 30, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. The, the reality of what's taking place here is where Saul is establishing his guilt. Whether he truly understand it or not, he feared the people and obeyed their voice. Remember, these are the people who clamored for a king. They demanded, give us a king. And God gave them Saul. And Saul became king for the reason that the people demanded one. And now he loses his kingship because he listened to the people's voice and not God's. Too late, Saul understands the cost that comes from a lack of leadership. He's begging for a do-over. He wants another chance. He grabs Samuel. He tries to restrain him and come with me. And for a second time, Samuel makes it clear that the king who had no equal, as we are told in chapter 10, has forfeited the kingdom to someone who is better than he is. Initially, Samuel refused to stay and lead the, sh- the service, but eventually his heart was moved to make a short appearance with Saul. But Samuel made it very clear in verse uh, 29 that we cannot interpret this as God changing his mind, Saul. I will go with you, But don't doubt for a moment that God is done with you because you have rejected Him. God is transcendent. He cannot be manipulated. Saul is begging Samuel to come and lead the worship service. Pardon me, Saul or Samuel. Make all this go away. I I will not do it again. And Samuel says, no, 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 you can't. There are no do-overs. This is a final thing. And then, using sacrificial language in verses 32 and 33, Samuel asks for the sacrifice to be brought. There was no doubt that Agag was going to perish. But it's, Samuel says that as you have shed blood, your blood will be shed. And he killed Agag before the Lord in Gilgal. He is offering the sacrifice. He is fulfilling God's command of verse 3. And what is so sad is that as this chapter ends... There's a rending not only of Samuel's coat, but of Samuel and Saul's relationship. In chapters 9 through 10, Saul is chosen by the Lord, but in chapter 15, he's rejected by the Lord. And the two men will leave Gilgal and they'll head in the same direction back to their hometown Samuel to Ramah and Saul to Gibeah. These two towns are only two miles apart. And yet we are told that they don't see each other again until the day of Saul's death. You see, sin destroys relationships. It separates us from God, and it separates us from our fellow man. 
the only way to deal with that sin is not to just go through the motions of a religious service, not to just pour out our hearts here and come to the front and pray and ask God for forgiveness and just wish it away and to do some motions to show some sign. It's to truly repent. It doesn't seem that Saul got it. His motivation, verse 30, is that he would be honored among the people by Samuel's presence. He's he's wanting the pageantry instead of the relationship. That's more important to him to get the People's Choice Award than to be honoring the Lord, his God. And yet, God is merciful. And we want to close with this thought. God was not going to change his mind to take away the kingship from Saul. But that does not mean that there was no possibility of forgiveness for Saul. Or that Saul would be prevented from worshiping God. It's never possible for us to sidestep all the consequences of sin. But it will always be possible for the genuinely repentant to find a different way forward in service to God. Friend, let me just plead with you. Hear God's voice and obey Him only. Turn from sin and trust the Savior. And see the mercy of God that He he will save. Saul's kingship is lost. That doesn't mean that your future has to be forfeited. It's a whole different dichotomy. God is not working with us as He did with King Saul. He had a leadership role that He did forfeit. And Sin may cost us things here, but never despair that you are beyond the reach of God. Today is a day of salvation. We don't know when that final hardening would come. So pray now that the Lord would change your heart and that you would know Him and rightly relate to Him before it is too late. Lord, we pray that you would give grace. We know that you are eager to give grace. That you, you want to relate to your people, not, not just in the sense of the Lord, sovereign one of the universe, but as a father. And that you do this through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, in the weakness of preaching, we are trying to convince people that Christ is worth it. That obeying God is far greater than any earthly treasure. That absolute obedience is the only obedience. That partial obedience is, in fact, disobedience. Only you can convince us these things are true. And so we just give this offering to you, Lord, this this exercise of this time that we've committed here to understand your word and the heavy truths that it conveys, that you would bring about a spiritual understanding and do a work in your people for the glory of your name and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to take a moment and transition to communion. This is Jesus died to save sinners. This is the reason we're here today. And we are here remembering the death and resurrection of Christ and what it means for us who are in Christ. And so I want us to take a moment to reflect on what we've heard, and to kind of order our thoughts around this 
this duty and this devotion of sharing the Lord's table with one another. So let's take a moment to do that before I ask the men to come up and we share the table.